Hi, I'm Kat Johnson, the Communications Director at HRN. Before we get to this week's episode of Beer Sessions Radio, we wanted to update you on your host, Jimmy Carboni. Jimmy is currently recovering from two spinal surgeries due to a staph infection. He's in good spirits and being given great care at NYU Langone, but he has a long road to recovery ahead of him. If you'd like to show Jimmy some love and support, please consider contributing to his wellness fund at gofundme.com slash jimmywellnessfund. Jimmy is nothing if not a dedicated host, and he wanted to make sure we had a show for you this week. So we're bringing you an episode of On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio, part of a limited series that took Jimmy on the road in New York State to bring you stories of the best beer, ciders, and spirits. We hope you enjoy. Hey, 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 this is Beer Sessions Radio. For the next few months, we're going on the road in the Empire State. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I've been working with beer for over two decades. Most of my work is in my bar, Jimmy's Number 43, in the East Village, or in the studio at the Heritage Radio Network as the host of Beer Sessions Radio. In my time, I've seen major changes in the craft beverage industry. There's a big movement right now to know where your food comes from and to consume local artisanal products. When I buy kale at the farmer's market, it's easy for me to feel part of this movement. But every time I enjoy a cold beer, I don't always think about where the beer comes from. And since I live in a city of 8 million people, I forget that beer, cider, and spirits are all agricultural products. This is the second episode in a very special series of Beer Sessions Radio. Over the next few months, I'm going to take you out of the studio and into the fields, malting houses, breweries, and distilleries of some of New York's best craft beverage producers. I'm really excited to have you on this journey. In our first episode, I visited the new primitives of Hudson Valley, New York. The brewers we met were using methods from 100 years ago, and they were doing it together. But when it comes to brewing, like Jake said, it's a family. We all work together, and we all grow together, and we are in an awesome community here, and uh, I'm digging it. Love it. In this episode, we're going a little further, to the edge of the wild. We will take you to the Catskills region just a few hours north of New York City. In this region, we found independent brewers, distillers, and cider makers, They had Wild West, do-it-yourself attitudes. That's exactly what I expected. (laughs) We came off 17, and here we are in the middle of the worst borough in uh, the Catskills in New York. And it's just as I expected. As we drove up, two dogs came running out from uh, Andy Brennan's house to meet us. And, uh, you know, it's a perfect country setting here. And so we're going to get out and uh, talk to Andy about cider here in uh, Worsboro, New York. How you doing? Good to see you again. Thanks for having us. Yeah. I forget you've been here before, right? I've never been up here, man. I thought you were maybe one of the tastings uh, that uh, Glenwood... For us together. I never, I never came up. I needed an excuse to come up. 
So we got a grant and we came up. <laughs> Our first stop is a very special place, Aaron Burr Cider. As you'll hear, not a lot of people get to visit. The cider maker is Andy Brennan. The apples make the cider. I'm, I'm just, my job's not to fuck it up. That's all. So, yeah, hi, I'm Andy. Uh, Andy Brennan from Aaron Burr Cider, more in Wordsboro, New York. All right on the way on the DNH Canal. Uh, which used to connect the Delaware River to the Hudson River. And, uh, so this house has been here for almost 200 years. That's sort of what we were attracted to. We moved up here really because we like the, the history and the stone walls and the rural way of life. I can't, I can't keep my focus here because there's so much to look at. It's the beautiful you know, vista over here and so Delaware and the Hudson Canal's down that way. Yeah, um, it, it goes along the uh, base, uh, the backside of that Schwangunk Ridge, and it goes um, from the Delaware River, which is 10 miles southwest of here, to the Hudson, which is about 30 miles east of here. And it's, uh, you know, obviously they didn't want the canal to cross the mountain, so they, they picked the low point and um, and uh, this road, which you probably hear as um, 209, is actually one of the oldest roads in America. It was um, when the Dutch um, settled in Kingston. This was their old mine road. Um, so they were getting copper and iron from literally right there. There's old mines right there. And it's considered to be the oldest commercial road in America for that reason. I wanted to visit Andy because his cider is some of my favorite. Each batch of cider is so different because Andy uses all kinds of different native apples. His cider making process starts with apple growing. Is there anyone that you, you, you look to for inspiration or are you, are you getting your stuff from books from the 19th century? I'm not somebody who likes to be part of a movement. I don't look at other people's labels or marketing them, but hugely influenced by sort of romantic writings from their previous centuries, the 18th and 17th century and 19th century actually, especially the 19th century, people like um, Thoreau who would write tremendous things about wild apples. The era of the wild apple will soon be passed. It is a fruit which will probably become extinct in New England. I fear that he who walks over these fields a century hence will not know the pleasure of knocking off wild apples. Ah, poor man, there are so many pleasures which he will not know. But it doesn't even have to be apple-rated. Like, I love Wendell Berry. Um, his, some of his stories just make me want to um, just curl up in my orchard and, and mess with the trees and, and hide for as long as I can. But last night I was reading something by Wendell Barrett. It made me think about what we have seemed to have lost during the, uh, the 20th century and uh, sort of this, this need to make money. And 
what, you know, was there, there's a lot of lore about cider and you, know, you said, you touched on it. You talked about people throwing apples off their trains and trees growing. You know, was there a Johnny Appleseed? I know, I know that there's been some writers who've written about yeah, it, but no, I want to hear it from your, your voice. Well, there is a Johnny Chapman who um, they named Johnny Appleseed. And um, I would like to add, as somebody who now can relate to him on another level, is that he was religious, a deeply, deeply religious person. And the apple tree was, was his symbol. It was um, the thing that he used to confirm that how we as humans could live in this world. So we are, in a sense, an artifice of nature as well. The apple tree isn't from this area. It was brought over by the settlers, the original settlers in the 1600s, but the apple tree escaped their farms and started to acclimate with, um, with the, uh, the Northeast United States. And, and that was, I think, for Johnny Chapman, a, um, um, a real sign that's what we should be looking to and it's how we should be living our lives, that we not take over the United States, but to, um, to sort of acclimate to it. And it's sort of how we really should have been or, or what he thought we should have been. Certainly Thoreau hints at this too. But anyway, that's not the way the 20th century played out. Literally, my first word was apple. I don't know what what it is about me because I didn't grow up on an apple farm. I grew up in the suburbs. We walked up a steep slope behind Andy's farm. Every year, Andy presses apples to make cider. When he's done, he takes what's left over from the apple and spreads it on the slope behind his farm where we were standing. You could kind of see that this is like an area that we threw the pumice. Like these are old apple skins. These are apple trees. Look at this. There's no way in hell you're planting an apple tree there. That's, that's not a rock. That's the earth. That's just pure ledge. And it's growing. Look at this. This is like right in this one area. Three square inches. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight apple trees. Yeah, I just feel like I'm amongst people, the right people, quiet people, you know, that uh, I'm an introvert, so I like to, uh, I need, I, I, I'm at a slower pace than I think most people. And uh, apple trees are like people, the old trees are. So in, in the 90s, I was, uh, I would have called myself a painter, that was my primary job was painting. I was an artist and I would spend the summers in the um, orchard painting. Being in a, an orchard like that made you feel like you're like at a Christmas party when you're a kid and you're shorter than everybody. You're waist height but you're like running around. Maybe you find another kid to play with and you're, you're operating at this lower level while everybody's like up there drinking their highballs and whatever the hell you know, people drank in the 70s. And uh, anyway, that's how I felt and just in that orchard down in, this was in Maryland, by the way, and on the shore of the Chesapeake Bay. Turning 30 and like, what am I going to do with my life? And a girl I was dating as, you know, I was um, mad for, and we broke up. And then my cottage burned down. I mean, all these 
all these things were just, all my paintings were destroyed. Yeah, it was just one of those moments where it's like, what do, what do I want to do? So, so when, in some ways, the 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 uh, developer did me a favor by destroying the orchard because he gave me like the uh, this is what you this is what you want to take from this experience. You want to the the orchard and the apple trees. Having those trees removed, like I couldn't back, get back the house, I couldn't get back the girlfriend, couldn't get back my paintings, but I could get back the apple trees. So I moved to New York, or I moved back to New York, um, and for five years I worked field of architecture and saved 80% of my my checks for five years and bought this property in 2006. Started planting apple trees. Yeah, painting's a good analogy because painting, you st now painters start with a blank canvas, you know, literally a white square. But uh, they used to paint on, on like walls like this or, you know, and church walls or caves and stuff like that. And other cultures still do. And um, it was more that your work was part of the place. So um, anyway, I think the apple tree um, for Johnny Appleseed was was sort of a, a mix of the apple tree and the place. Every little area should have a cider maker. We should all be trying to figure out what trees grow in those soils and how to best allow the tree to be what it wants to be in, in, in each area. This is great. I mean, this is like a living laboratory. I mean, we're on this hill that you've cleared. You've put down pumice. There's, there's apple trees growing everywhere. And, and you kind of self-select the ones that are getting bigger. You're wrapping in little protective devices. And uh, it's kind of a paradise. And we named, like, that's Harriet, that's Gertrude. There's Abigail, Bertha, Dolores, Clara, all these old names from, um, but we had to do it alphabetically. That's what A, B, C, D, and then we're up to H. So we, this tree, okay, so this tree, Harriet, um, this is, uh, that's Harriet, that's her, <laughs> her name. This tree has been dying, as you can see. It used to have a, another trunk that came out and this side. So I took the graft wood from, from one of the alive branches, which is about this much. And I took it, for um, that's like um, uh, six inches of the, of the most recent growth. And I collected that in the uh, winter. And then I grafted it onto this tree, which used to be a northern spy. So you could see where that graft union is here. So this... It's like a scar on the bark. That's yeah. what it looks like. So what I'm holding now is the wood from that tree. And this is now like two years old. So this actually might start fruiting. Um, whereas anything below that scar is... So the, the branch itself, the, the bark and everything is totally different from its parent tree. Yeah, but... So at this point, if this tree were to fruit over here, this would be Harriet, and if this were to fruit, this would be Northern Spy. And then if you see down here, 
Um, these are little root suckers coming up. And if these were to turn into trees and fruit, these would actually be a, another kind of fruit because this northern spy starts right here at a, at a graft from the nursery. So the tree root itself is a different tree. So you got one, two, three trees on this one, one living and then bean. And you call that other tree Harriet. Is that because you found that tree on your property and you don't know, there's no other yeah. identification? Or? Right. It's, it's most certainly a seedling given that it's growing on that. Well, you can't see it now, but it's, um, it's, it's a ledge right in that area. Apple trees have to be grafted to get any kind of consistency. That's because, incredibly, every single apple seed is a completely new, unique variety of apple. So up on the slope is Annie's experiment, and down the hill are his grafted trees, where he knows what to expect. Andy is a pro at making cider with both kinds of apples, the expected and the unexpected. Hey, let's let's let's. Uh, can we taste some cider? You want to talk about yeah, you want to how you make some cider? Um, switch because you know we. Why don't we go to the basement for that? Because uh, that's where the cider. This is all um, unfermented cider. Let me grab some cups though. Um, Walking into an old old barn, We're trying to get the character of, of every place that we visit. And this is another kind of farmhouse barn, and uh, smells like cider. This is a nice here. thing. Uh, this is our cold storage room, which still has tons of barrels in there. Yeah, I don't know if you could smell in there. It's, um, I mean, the, yeah, this this just couldn't be the more. I mean, you could feel um, the temperature now. It it um, it never gets above say 60 in the summer, and it never gets below 40 in the winter. So it's it's perfect for fermentation and keeping things steady. Well. First, let me just say, the cider we just drank is exactly what cider in the barrel will taste like. It's it's dry, um, bone dry. There's absolutely no sugars left in it. It's, it's, what, four years old now. But it's still, and that really, I think, you know, I, I would like to see ciders return to, see a lot more still ciders, because I think you can pick up on some of the nuances and certainly some of the more sultry qualities of cider by drinking it still. Of course, we have to have the right apples, but still, this is how they would have drank it 200 years ago. No question about the label. You know, Aaron Burr, you know, there's the gun, and, you know, Hamilton's a really popular musical. The Aaron Burr connection, what is that connection with you, and why did you name... So, Aaron Burr, in 1817, was the lawyer who sold this property from the Bayards of Manhattan to the Browns. That's what he did. He had no political career pretty much after he was um, shot Hamilton and tried for treason as well by Jefferson um, soon after. And um, so he was a lawyer, but he lived for another 30 years. He lived in Manhattan. This is among his ways of making a living was um, writing the deeds and selling the properties from, um, you know, this was the Wild West at the time, so the, some of the acre, you know, some of the lots were thousands of acres. So they needed to be divided up and surveyed, and you know, he was he sort of wrote the the legal um, record of this of a lot of properties up here, not just ours. But he represented a local history to the New York area, and from the time period, which I feel was imperative for cider, it was the height of cider. 
the early 1800s. So we wanted a name that was local and from that time period. And that's really what jumped out at us. The fact that he was the lawyer was on our property was the icing on the cake. We came all the way to Worsboro, uh, New York, which isn't too far from New York City, but it, it is in many ways very far away. And uh, we're very happy to talk with, with Andy Brennan, Aaron Burr-Suttery, and uh, we walked up hills and hung out with dogs and uh, talked philosophy while we drank some cider. So, all right, man. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. You're really a champion of, uh, of uh, so much, but uh, you wouldn't be if you didn't have the, uh, the passion We drove from Andy Brennan's farm in, in Worsboro, and once we got on 17B, um, we saw the old Monticello Raceway and run-down old resorts and hotels. And uh, once we got into White Lake and, and Bethel, Bethel Woods, um, started seeing these beautiful old dairy farms and, and, and rolling hills. And as Andy said, we're on the plateau of the, the Catskills and there's beautiful rolling hills. And uh, we pulled up right across from the old, uh, where the Woodstock was, uh, there's the, the Dancing Cat Saloon and the Catskills Distillery, and we're going to go in and uh, check out this distillery out here in uh, Catskills, New York, as we look into more of the edge of the wild. All right. Welcome all you strangers to the Great Divide. I'm Monty Sachs, and uh, I am from the Catskill Distilling Company here in Bethel, New York. Just got done with the first shift for the day. The second one is about to show up here any moment. Come on in. Pleasure, my friend. It's good to see nice you. Nice to man. see you again. I'll tell you, the first thing I notice is the smell. Well, that's because we've been rectifying and making whiskey all day. And now the second shift is coming in, and they are about to cook and strip. We're in the midst of. Uh, I think we're at 32 batches of bourbon so far, and we're gonna continue making it until our new still gets here, which should be any moment, hopefully. You know, I was surprised when I cracked open the first barrel of whiskey, and I couldn't believe how good it was. It's amazing to me that I actually learned how to do this just you know these are some this is a craft and an art that generally gets passed from generation to generation i was just in the right place at the right time with the right man to teach me this is complex so like you said when i had met you jimmy and i just had that vodka and quickly realized that vodka was not going to pay the bills so i began to look for someone to teach me how to make whiskey and you know, this industry is full of charlatans, but they're all experts. I found the fellow who had just retired from Brown and Foreman. His name was Lincoln Henderson, one of the greatest distillers that the world had ever seen. 
he not only was their master distiller, he consulted for every major whiskey company, actually alcohol beverage company in the world. Lincoln was the coolest and the chemist. And I don't believe Lincoln ever taught anyone outside of the industry. So I got his number, called this poor guy up at home, freaked him out, but we talked. And, you know, I tried to engage him and he wanted to talk technical and tech, it's right up my alley. So we spoke for a couple hours. He finally invited me down to spend a few days with him in Kentucky. And um, I guess he liked me because he decided to teach me how to do this. And the whiskeys that I make are the result of the tutelage of Lincoln Henderson. He was brilliant. He was a Bourbon Hall of Famer. Um, they called him the living legend of bourbon. Well, he was alive, unfortunately, passed away a couple of years ago. But he was the coolest of the cool. So what was the first lesson he taught you? Well, he taught me this is complex. You know, to make good whiskey is not an easy thing to do. Make whiskey simple. To make whiskey you want to drink is not so simple. The point is, is that I just had a plan from Lincoln and how it needed to be done. But no one had ever really done it before. So I just just figured it out. It was something that he had done research on um, when he was affiliated with Brown and Foreman. And uh, on an industrial scale, it is very cost prohibitive. But on my scale, it works great. And it's very possible that that was one of the reasons why Lincoln actually wanted to teach me is because he wanted to see how it worked in practice. And it works great. And what was his feedback on your whiskeys? Lincoln passed away before we actually even released any whiskeys, unfortunately. Within two months, he passed away two months before we had released the first bourbon. Such is life. It's a beautiful country. As we drove out, we drove by the old dairy farms, and we remarked that it was it was almost too perfect, some of these yeah, farms. Pretty idyllic, you might say. This is a great project and a great place to do it. This is where everyone came from the city. We were close to Manhattan, and, you know, the Catskills were famous for producing um, all the comedians, like Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. They all came here to perform. Uh, the boxers of the time all came here to train. This was the place to be. And that was late 50s into, I think, early 60s. And then people started getting on airplanes. And then they didn't need to come to the Catskills anymore. It was just as easy to drive to the airport, get on a plane, and a few hours later, you were in a totally different place. And that began the decline of the hotels. Of big hotels that are left up here, there's really only one unfortunately. I came to this area because of horses. I'm a horse vet, and well, at least I was. And I came to this area because uh, there's lots of horses here for me to work on. I came to this area 
to work in for a very special um, horse doctor who was very well known in the country. We're, we're a referral practice. We were doing 300 and something table surgeries a year, as well as it was a large reproductive practice. It was the largest area in New York for standard bred breeding. So as a young veterinarian, I'd see four or five new babies a day. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. It was unbelievable. No, it's really all about, you know, my background in chemistry to get into vet school and pharmacology. Um, you know, you begin to understand the interactions of different chemicals. And, you know, I was surprised to learn that this is very similar to that. But it is. You know, this is just a big chemistry set. You know, I just didn't realize as a retirement plan that this business was going to be as successful as it is. Um, you know, we buy none of our spirits. Everything that we sell, we make from scratch. Um, and we pride ourselves on that. We make spirits for some other distilleries, but um, everything that we sell under our name is made here, every drop. The smell is great, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost getting a little, a little buzz just from the smell. Uh, if you want to get a little buzz, we can go into the barrel house. You'll get a big buzz. Let's go there. Let's, let's okay, show come on. That. I spend most of my life on farms. Being a farmer is not really what I had in mind. Come on, you. Open up. Oh. We had our distributor here this morning from Italy, and he was in. They were here taking pictures for their uh, catalog. Anyway, very hot in here. So tell us about this part because this is pretty amazing. I see wheat whiskey yeah, and well, these barrels. I make four types of aged whiskey. I make a bourbon, I make a wheat whiskey, I make a rye, and I make a spirit that actually I call a whiskey, but the government does not. We're the only ones in the country that make it. It's made from buckwheat, and it is extraordinary. It is unlike anything anyone has ever made and does really well. Actually, all of our whiskeys do well. So this is a really hot rum. And the, this, the smell of the, the, the whiskey is, is kind of overpowering with it. Yeah. Yeah, well, we have just a very... Just outside with the door open. We have a proprietary method for aging our whiskey. Um, whereas in Kentucky, you know, their rack houses are very tall, and they'll rotate barrels from the top to the bottom because they're hot on top, cold on the bottom. These barrels are all the same temperature. So we cycle them in temperature monthly, from a bottom temperature to a high top temperature. And so in a period of two years, which is why our whiskeys are all straight whiskeys, we can produce a whiskey that I feel is like five or six year old whiskey. This room heated, it's a thing. <laughs> this is very heated. What is it, about 100 degrees in there? Uh, I think it's a little bit more than 100 actually at the moment. But this is not the highest temperature. It gets a lot hotter than this. So you have like temperature fluctuation? We very temperature this is computer controlled it's almost like you, you you took your barrels put them on a ship and had them sail around the equator for a couple of years no, no no very different because they get hot and then they get cold it's not it is not a constant hot temperature this is unlike anything that anyone has ever made but like i said it can't be called whiskey because buckwheat is not a grain. This is unique actually worldwide. 
is only me and this other fellow that make this stuff. This is a very difficult product to make. Buckwheat is not cooperative. As it turns out, this is a great business, but a very bad retirement plan. Well, you're working hard, man, I'll tell you that. I mean, you know, you start out, Monticello Race Track is nearby, and that's... It was, I worked there for 20 years. So you really know the area well. I know the area fairly well now, although I did come to Woodstock as a kid. I hitchhiked here from Connecticut, and just by, I guess, good karma, I ended back up up here. Yeah, I hitchhiked here. I grew up in Branford, Connecticut, and, uh, you know, that was a very interesting summer. It was 1969, and... Um, you know, I had been traveling with my cousin. We had gone to uh, the Newport festivals, and then we heard about this, and we decided to come up here. So neither one of us had a car. We hitchhiked, and uh, you know, we hitchhiked right basically in front of uh, the distillery here, and it was an extraordinary experience. And that really began to open my eyes to what goes on in the world or what could go on in the world. This was beyond comprehension. And I remember, you know, lying in bed at that age wondering about life, how, what life was going to be. I had no idea. After visiting Monty, we drove to the heart of trout fishing country in Roscoe, New York. It was dark when we got there, but when we woke up, we could see the natural beauty of the place, trees and rivers. We went to the nearby town of Livingston Manor. There we found the site of the Catskill Brewery. We met Randy Lewis, one of the three owners. Hey, Randy. All right, sir. Jimmy Corboni, nice to see you. You too. How you doing? And I am Randy Lewis, one of the uh, one of the partners in the brewery. Back to when you started. You know, how many years ago did the planning start? And so listen, why why Catskills also? So really um, a brewery in this area. There was so that was number one. There was no brewery in the area, and um, uh, all of the partners, collective partners, wanted to uh, start a business that would be fun. We love beer. So that was a good place to start. Listen, we, to be honest, we thought about a distillery at the time, but um, then we thought, well, wait a second, we could have a bigger impact on the local economy, creating jobs, um, creating a destination that would bring people here. And that was, I think, kind of the key part of our thinking. Um, the three principal partners all have day jobs, so they were really, we were trying to do something for the area that would have an impact, you know, for several generations and be sort of exponential growth and impact on the local economy. You know, you see now through the heavier seasons, which is uh, spring, summer, and fall, we're obviously quieter in the wintertime, but the amount of tourists that are coming to the area, coming to our town, supporting local businesses is, is so meaningful that in a year and a half, it could probably be measured. Randy's a huge fan of trout fishing. That's why he first started coming to the area. So when he built the Catskill Brewery, he wanted it to be the lowest possible impact on the environment. So we set out to build 
essentially the greenest building possible. We had a target of being Leeds Platinum, leadership in engineering and environmental design. Uh, we are in certification process now, which um, should be a few more months than we expect to achieve the highest level, which is platinum. But really, it wasn't when we were doing it, it wasn't necessarily the goal. We just decided with everything we did, weigh the green option against the conventional building option and pick one. You know, if the, if the cost wasn't significantly different, then we'll pick the green option. So almost everything we did, whether it's wood on the walls, um, the flooring, uh, the lighting, everything was a green environmental decision. Um, now we bring have brought through schools through the place, showed them some of the things, you know, how green technology works, geothermal heating, cooling, which does, aside from providing the heat in the building, provides the air conditioning next door in the office, um, provides the uh, cooling for the coolers, um, we have a solar PV system, which, you know, is, is now becoming more and more common for electricity. Um, and then we have a solar hot water system, which we use to back up geothermal for heating and cooling, but also preheating brew process water. You know, our plan is to put all of this stuff online on a website, even live data from our solar PV system, solar hot water system, um, a schematic of how the geothermal system operates um, so they can kind of see this stuff. But, you know, it just makes... You know, kids think a little broader about, you know, the choices. You know, every day we're hearing about global warming and this kind of stuff. So I'm not suggesting that we made all the right decisions, but we made decisions that will help inform others. I was here 2011 for an event, and that's when I first got turned on to anti-fracking movement. And uh, we did know about Mark Ruffalo. We were involved with something called Chefs for the Marcellus for a few years. And I know that Mark was mm -hmm. one of the, the leading advocates, you know, for not fracking and uh, influence Governor Cuomo. So um, I know a lot about it, but maybe you can say more. I don't know if you want to say more about it, well, what if I, that's in your interest or not, because if it's not. Um, well, listen, we, you know, we were successful in New York State in, uh, in defeating fracking and keeping it out of New York State, at least for the time being. One of my partners, Ramsey Adams, is a environmental advocate and runs the Catskill Mountain Keeper, which was at the very front lines of the fight against fracking. But at the end of the day, everybody knows what fracking is and the, you know, pro or con, you know, uh, we all have our opinions. Obviously, we are, we want to protect, we're all about the environment. We are obviously anti-fracking. But more importantly here in the Catskills, it's about the water. You know, we supply the drinking water to, to New York City. New York City is known to have some of the best drinking water in the world. Water is the key ingredient in beer. And with good water, you should be able to make good beer, and that's exactly what we've done. That was kind of a, a focus of the project to begin with, is highlight, feature the Catskill water. Um, the water that provides the drinking water in New York City comes from the Papacton Reservoir. That is about 15 miles from here. It's about four miles from my house. And again, you, you, you won't find better water many places in the world. And that's something that needs to be protected. Well, sure. You know that um, when, they're, um, when they are drilling fracking wells, they are going down as deep as plus or minus 8,000 feet. So in that process, obviously, you're going through a number of different aquifers, but you're going below them to ultimately pull gas out from deep in the ground, um, the deposits. But in the process, 
what has happened and they believe has happened in Pennsylvania and I think some other places around the country is they end up releasing gas that will find its way up into the upper aquifers, water aquifers. So that's where the contamination, the risk of contamination to water occurs. And there's also a lot of water used in the fracking process as well. And then there's the issue of the waste. When that comes up, there's chemicals like benzene, really toxic chemicals that have never really been the, the full, uh, I think it's a, tr a copy, a trademarked or patented uh, chemical solution that's used. The, I don't think it's ever been fully released what exact chemicals are in that fracking solution. It's really for us, it's all about the water, right? You know, it's as simple as that. We are protecting the water. Our business is all about the water. Without good water, we can't make good beer. You know, we're doing that, we want to protect it, but at the same time, um, you know, from a sort of a principle and value perspective, you know, I want the proliferation of renewable energies, you know, throughout the country, the world. If this place is a starting point, you know, something that perpetuates that, perfect. I mean, I'll get only back in 2011, when, when, when I came up to this part, Sullivan County, Bethel and, and, and West, you would see signs for fracking and against neighbor versus neighbor. And some of the people here, they, they were, it wasn't a bad you know, incentive for some people to, to, to lease their lands to these energy companies. And considering the other you know, economic opportunities around here, if you own land, to be able to lease your land for money was not a bad idea. The problem with fracking is that the, the, the potential risk of any type of you know, pollution or, or water contamination, it's also the, the identity of the region. You're trying to build it around farm to table, agriculture, craft products like, like beer and, and tourism versus, oh, short-term selling of our, our energy rights. Well, in, in an area that's already depressed, it, it's not going to make anyone want to move here. It's not going to help property values go up. So I think in the end, New York State made the right choice in, in favor of tourism and craft beverages. And the government, I think, has done the right thing. He's really pushed for a craft beverage laws like the farm brewery licenses. And, and that's great, man. It makes a lot of sense. Now I understand you have the background, the skills to to do something like this. Because you really are, like I said, 2011, it was either fracking or anti-fracking. And I felt like this county was on the verge. And I feel like that what you guys are doing is, is pushing this county in the right direction, you know, for life and economy. And, uh, you know, I think you, you're a real asset, man. So I'm glad you built a brewery. <laughs> Instead well, of thanks, an amusement park or thanks something. Thanks me too, because all of this, uh, all of all of our hard work, um, you know, builds um, our thirst, and the thirst needs to be quenched. Why don't we sit down <laughs> and taste some beers? Water, the most forgotten of beer's four ingredients. As we drove from the Catskill Brewery to even further west, we passed where Catskill Brewery gets its water. It's the Papacton Reservoir. That's also where my water comes from at my apartment in New York City. So it's really these brewers we have to thank for the high quality drinking water we get in the city. We're on the edge of the wild, Beer Sessions Radio on the road. So we drove a little farther and we crossed up into Delaware County. We're up in Walton and it seems like we're, you know, farther in the Catskills, but it's a nice old town. Another one of these really great uh, old small cities that at one time probably had manufacturing and, and had a lot of trade with New York City. So we're going to talk to Cheryl Lynn's at the Delaware Phoenix Distillery, and I know she knows some of the history of this town, and uh, she's one of the new producers here that's actually doing something, and it's quite unusual that she chose to make absinthe. At the time, was the only maker in New York State making absinthe, and we're going to find out really from her what the business is like and, you know, the type of work she has to do up here in uh, the Catskills area of New York. 
um, being a craft beverage producer. So here's Cheryl Lynn's now. We're, we're on the old Main Street, Railroad Avenue in uh, Walton, New York, and uh, we're going to come in and say hi to Cheryl. You know, first impressions of walking in to this space is the smell. Oh, and it's, thank you. What, what, what are we smelling? Because there's so many great flavors in the air. Well, what, it depends on what you're actually picking up on. You could be picking up on the uh, yeast of the fermentation that's going on right now. Uh, that could be one thing. If there's an anise aroma, uh, that's from uh, making absinthe, which is the other thing I make. I make various whiskeys, uh, bourbon, rye whiskey, cord whiskey, and aged uh, uh, wheat whiskey. And... I make a couple different absents, so you could also be smelling this uh, these ferments going on. There is a lot in there, but definitely I smelled the, the anise when I walked uh -huh. in. That was uh -huh. so. Tell us about this place and how you came to be here. The basic idea was uh, I'd been drinking absinthe. Discovered that in 2006, it was only available in Europe, it wasn't available here in America, and so you had to order it online, and it was very expensive. And um, so over time, it was either, well, I guess I should just give this up because I was just, uh, had a kind of not very well-paying job at the time, and uh, said, well, I'll just stop this. Or I discovered that, oh, you can actually get a little pot still from Portugal. Oh, my gosh, I can actually go, I can try and make it, and we'll see what happens. So anyway, I kind of worked on that for about uh, six, seven months, and Eventually, people that I knew started liking what I was making over the commercial absence that I'd been getting from Europe. And these were, you know, the high-grade commercial absence. They weren't the, the fake ones with, uh, you know, artificial colorings and uh, flavorings. So I was like, really? So anyway, one thing led to another. We had a terrible flood here in Walton in 06 as well uh, that a lot of people thought the town wouldn't be here uh, several of the major businesses that were here were nearly destroyed, uh, but they both chose to come back, and uh, so there was three, nearly three feet of water in this building at that time. So it looked like a nice little building, and I thought, well, let's, you know, the job situation isn't so great, and here we are in Delaware County, where you basically have to create your own job, and so I figured, well, let's see what happens. I didn't know how hard it would be to start a distillery. Uh, so it took about 18 months to go through all the permitting process. There was some, you know, there was a lot of support here at Walton, but there was also some opposition. Walton was dry from 1845 till about 1965. You know, we have 13 churches in Walton, and people from one church came by uh, to the various zoning meetings because uh, in the zoning code in Walton that they instituted in the 80s, they said, no distilling of beverages. You could have a fuel distilling facility over in the kind of industrial section of town, but no distilling of beverages. You, I, you could open a brewery, no problem. Distilling, uh-uh. So I had to get a zoning variance and they kind of fought that. And they were, you know, they thought, oh, it'd be fine. Someone asked, oh, can you, uh, what if someone put a gun shop right here on Main Street? And they're like, oh yeah, that's fine. You know, but they kind of also saw it as, you know, maybe that I was, might have been a moonshiner or something like that, which was never true. And, uh, why aren't you up in the hills? It's like, well, this is a legitimate business. What, what is the myth about Wormwood? I mean, I, 
I don't really understand first what it is and why it was ever considered not safe or Yes, those are really good questions. Uh, wormwood is a plant in the Artemisia genus. There's about 125 plants, uh, different individual species in this broad category of wormwoods. And it was a medicinal plant going back to at least Roman times. So mostly for stomach ailments, probably because back then people actually had intestinal worms and there actually is a chemical in it that is effective in you know, killing them. So, but it's very, very bitter, very bitter plant. So that may even be some of the origin of the term, taking the bitter with the sweet, because you would have had to have added sugar or honey or something in a big dose to actually you know, kind of knock back some of that bad flavor. So the original production of absinthe was as a medicinal uh, type of medicine back in the late 18th century. Uh, but it was basically alcoholism. That was got, what got absinthe a bad rap in the late 19th century, early 20th century. There was such a huge problem with drinking, uh, not only in France and around Europe, but also in the U.S., kind of the beginning of the women's movement too of you know tired of having men come home drunk and you know beating up on their wives or whatever and it's like hey you know let's put a stop to that so it was really seen as a very bad thing they did not understand alcoholism as a disease until the early 20th century so it was in France especially uh, absinthe was the drink that the temperance movement in Europe demonized, just like whiskey was demonized here and gin was demonized in England. And so that was really the thing. It was, and people have done research now, uh, kind of looking back at the past descriptions of people's problems uh, when they say they had someone who had absinthism. Uh, and they go, this really isn't any different from severe alcoholism, you know, when you have the DTs and go into withdrawal and you see the pink elephants and all that sort of stuff. So none of us have ever experienced that. <laughs> you know, those, that era is long gone, but... Uh, the three martini lunches. And... Exactly, exactly. So, so that was really where it came from. Uh, so yeah, in 1915, the French banned absinthe uh, during World War I when they were losing to the beer-drinking Germans. And so uh, they said, wait a minute, the Germans are at the gate. All the, all the troops want to do is drink absinthe in the trenches. You have to ban this stuff. So that's they finally did after trying for many years. So, so that was kind of the history of absinthe as far as that went. And it disappeared for till the 90s started to surface again. Old bottles. You know, someone would find an old bottle. Oh, was it absinthe? I've heard of that. And... Uh, kind of like finding an old bottle of wine. They'd open it back up. Oh, this actually isn't bad. In America, absinthe was never banned. Wormwood was never banned. What they started doing in 1906 with the Pure Food and Drug Act was... Uh, the U.S. had an agency, it was the predecessor of the USDA, but they were very 
they were at the forefront of scientific analysis of beverages and food. America was quite a leader. And they developed a test. The belief at that time was that the cause of the danger of wormwood, which we now know to be alcoholism, was they thought it was a chemical called thujone. And that chemical is in wormwood. Um, so they said, well, gee, if we regulate that, people can do what you want. So they ended up developing a little test, uh, a very fancy kind of litmus test, and um, that they could use to, to test something, whether it had thujone in it or not. Of course, the test was wrong a lot. It had a lot of false positives. <laughs> It was very simple and basic. We're talking 1906. Top-of-the-line technology for 1906. And uh, so basically, absinthe was, well, you don't pass, so you don't get in. So that's really what it was. There were probably some absinthe-like products uh, that were made without uh, wormwood. So, of course, those would pass. That probably is the story behind, you know, the things that you've heard. Uh, some people also say, oh, the... The absence in Europe are more authentic than the American ones. Well, that's not true either. So, you know, I'm using, you know, the same type of ingredients, uh, very similar distillation protocols. You know, my absinthe is just as authentic as anything uh, coming out of Europe. I've had pre-band, so I can at least say I know what it was like. Basically, the way I, absinthe traditionally was done with adding water. So um, I like about four parts water to one part absinthe. I kind of got a fairly big pour there, but anywhere from three to five, and a lot of it's personal preference. Um, I use a lot of anise in my production, so I don't believe it's necessary for there to be uh, any need for sugar with my absinthe. It's gonna to be totally sweet enough uh, as it is. And I just, ideally I would have put this maybe in my freezer and let it chill a little more, but I just got this from the tap. We have pretty cold tap water here. You do want pretty clean water. Uh, some place, while New York City gets its water from here in this area and from our reservoirs, and it's really good. So we're just gonna slowly dribble water into the glass. And now it's starting to go milky. And the situation there is what we have happening is that we have um, the chemical anethol, which is a part of anise, is falling out of solution because it's more alcohol soluble than water soluble. So it's coming out of solution and being all milky and uh, it luches, this French word meaning dirty or kind of shifty, shifty-eyed person, that kind of mean-looking person on the corner. He's loose. He's a loose person. Uh, Has that cigarette hanging outside of his mouth, gives you the dirty eye, like, hmm. Anyway, that's kind of what it is. So I'm just, I'm just use this little cup with this cold water and... I slowly poured it in. I didn't just dump it in. Just slowly poured it in and, and went from there. So let me see. I'm going to give it a quick taste. Release the flavors. You can smell the anise in the air. Yes. Now, personally, I would like this a little colder. 
uh, just because it then warms up as it goes. But this is perfectly fine. I like a cold drink. Watch, I'll break out into French. Joie de vivre, hey, everybody roll out the barrel. This would be like a crazy party. Wormwood, got to my brain, oh no. <laughs> I'm afraid to taste it. No, it'll be fine. Mm. It's really not a strong drink. You're putting one part absence to what? Four parts water? Right, exactly. So you're getting it down to maybe like strength of brandy. Yeah, maybe a glass of wine, something like that. And back in the day, too, this is another issue. If these guys are sitting at the cafe, watching the day go by, and they're drinking absinthe after absinthe, they've had five ounces or whatever of like 136 proof booze in them. You're going to get pretty plastered on that. It doesn't matter what, how much water you add it. Well, I'm really excited. This is my first absence, and I get to have it All with right. you, well, Cheryl. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you very much, Jimmy. That's Delaware great. Phoenix Distillery. It's called Walton Waters. Exactly. With the waters, we got the, the herbs, all the uh, uh, anise and fennel don't grow here in New York. Um, they're really more southern climate types of things, so I have to bring those in from Italy and Turkey. But uh, the wormwood, hyssop, lemon balm, uh, the three kind of main herbs within absinthe, uh, I have all grown here for me. So you really can't, and you have to harvest it specially, and it really is a unique thing. Asante. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so Merci much. Merci beaucoup. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Beer Sessions Radio on the Road. If you want to visit the Catskills region and the craft beverage makers profiled in this radio special, check out the Escape Maker package on heritageradionetwork.org. Special thanks to the craft beverage producers we met in this episode. Andy Brennan from Aaron Burr Cider, Monty Sachs from Catskill Distilling, Randy Lewis from Catskill Brewing, and Cheryl Linz from Delaware Phoenix Distillery. We also want to thank Dana Ball of Upward Brewing Company, Donna Valone of Creekside Cabins, the Roscoe Brewery, Main Street Farm Cafe, and the Arnold House. This episode was hosted by me, Jimmy Carboni. It was produced and recorded by Caitlin Pierce with help from Harry Huggins. The episode was engineered, mixed, and scored by David Tadashore with editorial oversight by Aaron Fairbanks, all for the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening.